we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Emily Watkins. We're speaking with Thomas Buford Jr., co-chair of the Buffalo Together Community Response Fund. Thank you so much for joining us here on Buffalo What's Next. To start, I'd love to have you just talk a little bit about how you got involved with the Buffalo Together Fund and how that came together. Sure, so, you know, I was actually graciously invited to be a co-chair. That was a decision made by some of the funders who had actually contributed to the Buffalo Together Community Response Fund and uh, made the same selection for Dr. Ansari as well. So we're proud to do it. It was a very deliberate action on behalf of this collective funders and, and that deliberate action being, you know, they wanted this initiative to be led, be black led. They wanted it to, uh, um, basically, they wanted to empower, uh, if you will, um, they wanted to say, hey, um, we believe that you guys can lead uh, the solution. Certainly, it wasn't an abandonment. It wasn't like, take this money and you guys go figure it out. But it was, a, it was definitely a show of confidence in the abilities, uh, capabilities, and resources that uh, an experience that uh, the, this own community could bring together to help solve for some of the issues and conditions that exist. Definitely, and I've been talking with a couple different funds and organizations who have been handling these donations, and it seems like they kind of break up into three different categories. There were organizations that had a very immediate response after the tragedy. There were funds like the National Compassion Fund, which was more of like midterm, um, assistance. And from reading about the Buffalo Together Fund, this really looks like a long-term investment. A am I correct on that? I, I agree with that. And, you know, I always kind of categorize that, you know, the immediate responses we were, and, you know, the community was very grateful for, uh, you know, it caused all of kind of the mass landings, para people parachuting in, and, uh, you know, you could barely walk down Jefferson Avenue. Uh, actually, with all of that traffic, um, I've even heard uh, long-term residents say that it was reminiscent of the days when that when Jefferson was a, a you know a burgeoning commercial uh, corridor. So for some people, you know, it was even in the midst of that tragedy, uh, it was reminiscent of those of those days. But yes, you know, but some of those people came in, and as quickly as they came in they left. Some left with a kind of logical exit where they said, hey, you know, we're leaving, but we're leaving some residual resource in place, and this is how you can reach us. Some, you know, when we woke up the next day, they were, they were just gone. Uh, the thing about that is that uh, the hope that was in the community, uh, sometimes when you see 
when you have a tragedy of any of any sort, but you feel any any type of of this type of trauma, uh, certainly not to this extent. But your hope is that there will be some comfort, uh, that there will be other people who people who empathize with you and just kind of reach in from their own humanity and say, hey, I want, I want to do something. I want to be there for you. So when you see that type of hope, that's very inspiring. But when it leaves, when it leaves, then you say, hey, you know, I guess that's all I should expect. And we're going to have to work through the rest of this by ourselves. So, you know, so there was some of that kind of withdrawal anxiety from uh, the original initial respondents. And then there were things like the, the uh, compassion fund that looked at a, you know, a specific group of individuals and it was a spend down type of fund though, meaning here's an amount of money and uh, you're gonna make a decision about this population of people and then you're going to make allocations and at the end of those allocations, the balance in that fund should be zero. It was an arduous task to try to make, you know, just determine how that funding should be allocated, but it, you know, it was completed and that fund went down to zero. And there have been other efforts and other resources that have come to the community, largely spin down. Uh, and then of course there were resources like the, the Buffalo uh, United Resil Resiliency Center that was set apart to be a kind of a three-year initiative. So that's even more, um, I would still consider that intermediate that brought funding uh, to the community to make sure that specific resources were um, were compounded and that were concentrated into that community to deal with the aftermath of, of the trauma and just help people try to regain some normalcy in their daily lives. And then most recently, after about a year of engaging the community and understanding the level of need and what the community desired and if the scope and scale of what was actually um, initially brought forth, if, if that was sufficient. And, uh, you know, it was decided or understood through, through that, uh, through community inf information that the, a greater response was needed. So it was expanded. New York State, under our new governor, uh, added, um, I'll say, double down on both the, the funding numbers in terms of dollars, but also expanding the scope of the geography of who could who could avail these resources, right? Mm -hmm. So we found that the initial uh, effort was a little, may have been re restrictive in some senses, and it's hard to categorize who was actually impacted and how, right? So there was a lot of learning that we got from the community. So then that, that those two I would categorize as immediate and intermediate uh, responses, but then you get again to the long term. And the Buffalo Together Community Response Fund, it did have one component that was immediate that said there are lots of organizations who are doing boots on the ground work, who have the trust of the community and are able and already getting into spaces that maybe larger organizations or organizations who are not as familiar with the community and don't have some of the relationships that exist. You, you know, that was not a time to really build uh, new relationships. So we had to rely on those who had already uh, um, nurtured those trusted relationships. And so funding went to those individuals um, at the beginning of the Buffalo Together Response Fund. And it went to them uh, in terms of with, uh, you know, kind of trusted philo uh, philanthropic um, efforts, right? We didn't, 
the normal paperwork and red tape that would happen in grant making processes, um, they, 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 went, they decided that we're gonna forego that because we need to get this, we need to be very deliberate about these actions and it's, it's urgent and it's immediate. So that happened, but again, the longer term thing is not to deal so much with the aftermath of May 14th and what happened as a result of you know that horrific uh, shooting and massacre and all the uh, ideology that went along with it of hate targeted against uh, a specific group of people. But it, it really looked at what were the conditions uh, that pre-existed in Buffalo. Certainly some of those conditions made that particular site a, a rich target uh, for um, anyone who wanted to inflict that type of harm and that type of hate on a specific group of people, specifically Black people in the community. So we know some of those conditions are housing conditions and uh, uh, investments and redlining that pushed, uh, concentrated a specific demographic of people in a small space, a small geography. So we know that contributed. We know that the lack of investment contributed to the lack of integration in that community amongst different demographics. So, you know, if you want to come and target a specific group of people, Black people, and you also did not want to inflict that harm on people who are not Black, that's, a, that's a, you know, maybe a rich target for that. If you wanted to think about, can I go there on any given day, especially a Saturday, um, and make sure that there was, um, I would meet a critical mass of those potential targets then yes, that was a place largely due to the fact that we had one large center and I won't call it a shopping center, but you know, that had evolved as is um, indicative of our culture into a communal space, right? Where yeah. some people may have said, I'm only going there to get, you know, one apple, but guess what? While I do that, I'm gonna have 10 conversations in the meantime, right? Mm -hmm. So it was more communal and again, beyond food, there were other services that were available there. So, so that happened, but so the, the, the Buffalo Together Community Response Fund is looking at causal conditions, uh, systems uh, that existed, um, impediments that existed, that uh, brought all those conditions. We're talking about poor housing. We're talking about AIDS housing. We're talking about a housing market that is that did not increase or did not appreciate at the same rate of, as housing, similar housing across, uh, across Main Street, uh, environmental conditions, transportation challenges, health challenges, and educational challenges that plague the community. Well, all of those things we're, we're looking at and saying, okay, how do we one advance uh, development in that in those things in those in that community, but also how do we at the same time concurrently remove impediments? Uh, and again, many of these impediments are uh, a function of structural and historical um, racism that existed in, in the community. That said, some of the conditions were by default and some of those conditions are very much by design. And in order to address those multifaceted uh, issues uh, that were there by designs and that, that were very deliberate, then the response has to be also very deliberate and intentional. And uh, that would, that's a part of what the uh, Buffalo Together Community Response Fund is doing. Um, but we're also doing that with um, 
with a lens of diversity. Um, and we're also doing that with an, uh, a lens of development without displacement. Because we want, as this community develops, as we know it will, as development comes, we want the residents, the long-term residents who are there to participate in the evolution of that development uh, and, and, and an equitable, in an equity state, meaning um, they are the businesses, they are the small businesses, they are, they are employed uh, in that development process. Um, and when that development process matures, and we have this new desired state of what East Buffalo could look like, that those long-term residents are able to stay in their community that they love and have nurtured and have endured uh, the harsh times for, they wanna be able to stay there and enjoy the amenities, uh, the new amenities. They want to enjoy the proc their uh, proximity to all of the other great things that the city of Buffalo has to offer. So, you know, we're looking at this with a lens of development without displacement and also moving from a state of scarcity to uh, a state of, you know, empowerment. Thank you so much. That was such a great and in-depth description of what you do. And I think it really helps people to understand the full picture of what you're trying to do. I want to take a step back and ask you, you mentioned, you know, cutting some of that red tape and in talking with Victims First, the National Compassion Fund, some of these other funds, it seems like the difficulty with any of these funds is striking that balance between like getting people and organization, organizations money as quickly as possible, but also doing in a way that avoids fraud, avoids confusion, you know, make sure it goes to the right places. In, in those initial months and getting that funds out to, I believe it was over 70 organizations because I was looking through the list. How do you strike a balance between getting those funds out quickly and cutting some of that red tape and also ensuring that the money is going to the right place? Right. So these were... Um... Uh, maybe the way that those monies were given out compared to uh, historical processes was extraordinary. Uh, and uh, maybe something that will happen for one time until we can develop better systems. But, you know, extraordinary circumstances require extraordinary responses. And that's, you know, that's uh, the space that we were operating in. Um, and it said, um, we can't delay. This resource is needed for in this space at this time and at this speed. So those impediments were there. Now, what we need to do is really try to understand how can we move from one end of that spectrum where it's, it's, it's heavily, um, you know, where there's, there are a lot of different um, processes or elements of the process that we have to go to to get to a, a decision and um, examine those processes and see, one, are they equitable? Uh, are those impediments, if you will, do, is there any really good reason for them? Is, are there legal issues? Are there uh, potential fraud issues? Are there compliance issues? Uh, you know, look at all of those, of, of those things to say. If not, then, you know, we need to uh, remove uh, those uh, either questions or requirements, what have you, from, from the process. It, it, uh, it does not serve it does not give you a better outcome and it does not get you get you closer to 100% perfection, right? So this is not striving for perfection. And we have to kind of center this on uh, element of trust and that we know that these groups have 
a reputation of doing great work in the community. They have access that others do not have. Uh, and then beyond that, if we find that they don't, uh, are not at the level of maturity or don't or lack the infrastructure um, or don't have the sustainability that some organizations have, then if they're doing really, really great work, then, then try to incubate those uh, organizations uh, and to give them that infrastructure, plug them into that infrastructure in a way that helps them to uh, mature in, in, um, in, in that space and still be able to um, deliver the, the wonderful programs and services uh, that they can uniquely uh, perform. Is a challenge to um, newer nonprofits and nonprofits that are minority um, owned and operated, um, is part of that challenge learning this process of getting funding and that financial process? And have you heard anything from organizations through giving out these grants about how, I guess, funders could do better at making that process equitable to people who are maybe new to it or maybe um, didn't have access to education about it or are just getting started? Right. I mean, I mean, to start some of the processes to even apply for funding uh, are now very automated um, and digitized. So, you know, if you're moving from a space or from an environment where there's a digital divide, so you're starting off with a challenge there. And then there are very, you know, standard uh, places where people look um, uh, to find out if you're registered or if you're in good standing in certain, uh, with certain agencies and, in certain, and with certain programs. And if you have no knowledge of that, even you could be doing great work in a community for 10 years and if you're not doing proper filings, uh, not that you're, you know, have any intent to to not do it, but you're, if you're not aware, if you are not in certain systems, or have not um, just um, completed some very uh, what funders might look at as very basic administrative um, details are incomplete, then you know uh, that may uh, move you outside of the space to be able to um, take advantage of some of the resources that are available. So in that infrastructure, in that, in, you know, in that incubator process, um, in helping those uh, organizations know uh, these are, so, so it's gonna be a couple of things. It's gonna be helping those organizations move towards um, being complete in terms of those administrative requirements, but also um, going back to the people who are funding and saying, is all of that really necessary? And does it really guarantee the things that you are looking for that they will happen or the outcomes that you expect will happen? Or does it guarantee that the outcomes you don't, you're trying to ameliorate that those things go away as a function of these, these uh, you know, five or six extra um, checkpoints that you have in your process? So, you know, it's, it's, you know we have to be working from both ends to make sure that there's um, that there is equity in this process, um, so that um, we don't fall into a situation of what could be perceived as philanthropic redlining. Thank you. And you know, one of the things that um, I really wanted to address in this interview is, 
And I'm excited. I just read the new updates on your website and it's exciting to see all the things that are happening for your fund. Um, but I know you had those initial donations, the creation of the steering committee, and it sounds like the past few months have really been, um, it looks like a lot of like planning and, and, and developing these process, processes that you were talking about. Can you share a little bit um, with us about what the past few months have been like and where the um, Buffalo Together Fund is heading? Sure, so beyond the initial appointment of myself and Dr. Ansari as co-chairs of the steering committee, uh, we actually populated um, a steering committee. It's about 15 member steering committee made up of individuals from the community who bring their own professional and also personal experience and resource to uh, the um, development of the of the efforts that we believe are going to um, uh, re-energize this community, reinvigorate this community. Uh, so we have that. Uh, additionally, uh, we hired a consulting team, uh, Rainbow Research Consulting, uh, made up of, again, black and brown um, uh, uh, researchers um, who are in the space of understanding uh, many of the elements of the, the social determinants of, of that impact of health and wealth that impact uh, this community. They have um, uh, national reach. They've been involved with uh, and have experience in areas that of, of issues where we're experiencing, that we're experiencing here in Buffalo, especially in East Buffalo. And they're able to inform us on what actions have been taken in other spaces across the country, which of those have been successful. And they look for similar elements uh, and solutions. And they uh, have brought that or, or continue to bring that information in and share with us and expose uh, this group so that we can um, make decisions there. Also, they did a very uh, in-depth analysis of um, the body of work, the literature, all of this, uh, all these efforts that have already happened in the city of Buffalo to address some of these very um, uh, issues that we're that are still uh, very much um, uh, have a, a, a horrible impact on our community today. So they looked at that body of work to see how much um, was given, who administrated it, what were the expected outcomes, and what actually happened. In some cases, you know, we had plans that were funded, but we were not able to operationalize them. Uh, so that's one of the things we think we where the Buffalo Together Community Response Fund think we're, uh, we're we're looking to make sure we're setting plans in place that we can actually operationalize. That will set us apart. In addition to all of these outside uh, all this outside information and all of the the um, the lit review that was done. Uh, there's been engagement, local engagement with the public, private, and philanthropic community to say, you know, how can you help? How can you uh, help uh, grow this investment? Um, and then also learned experience, lived experience, people from the community who have uh, had their experiences before May 14th, who can share some of their trauma, share some of their hopes and dreams, share some of their memories of what used to be and some of their, uh, as well as their dreams, some of their frustrations with what they've seen uh, 
had hoped would happen and has not happened as of yet. So, you know, all that information. So it's a planning process. Um, admittedly, when we get to a one-year milestone, uh, comparisons are drawn. And there's a wide spectrum of people's thoughts on what should have happened by this time. Um, uh, and then uh, their, their own opinions about if we're going back into the same space um, or and, and begin to lose hope. But I, 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 I suggest that they stay encouraged because uh, a one-year planning trajectory um, or even one year of action cannot um, address and fix in a very, very demonstrable way um, decades of neglect, decades of intentional disinvestment in this community. So um, what we do know is that the efforts that are going to be here, we want them to be sustainable. We want them to be transformational. We know that it's going to require systems change, policy change, uh, you know, and um, we want that development process that happens. We want people from that community or from the East East community, East Buffalo, to have an equity stake in in all the development that that happens here. This might be kind of like a difficult question to answer at this stage, but um, I had an interview recently that something stuck that stuck with me was um, they talked about the concern that a lot of this change for the east side of Buffalo is not going to impact people in the next few years, but it'll impact people 10 or 20 years down the line. How as a fund do you do you plan to balance the need for change in the immediate coming years with these more longer term systemic changes? Or do you see those as just really intertwined that if you support those more immediate changes, it will also help down the road? Right, so there's planning for those systemic changes and there's that implementation of those of those things. And the planning of that, um, you know, will, will continue. I mean, it's gonna be continuous improvement, continuous planning, and then there'll be execution along the way. They'll be uh, operate. This thing will be operationalized. We're talking about you. You know, when you talk about something, um, a large project, uh, in terms of you know building a, a stadium, right, a structure, and um, uh, that that's a long planning window. But uh, when you talk about the immediate, there will be there, there's jobs that can be created from certain things. So as this community develops, you know, we want people to not be only participate and see the outcomes and uh, you know all of the upside of what's gonna come way down the road, but we want them to be able to participate in also how it gets there, right? That new jobs were created, walkable jobs, jobs that they can walk through from their community so that when this empowerment, when this development happens, it's not that someone else did it and um, you know kind of bestowed it upon this community, but that this community, given the opportunity, given the access to the resources and the removal of impediments and obstacles that this community can also uh, be um, participate fully and equitably in their own uh, self determination. So uh, yes, it, you know there will be uh, um, opportunities um, as this plan unfolds, as this plan develops, for people to participate. And I think that you know that's where the where the groundswell will come from that's when people will start to see they won't be looking for some change to come from somewhere else like they will actually be 
um, and active and participating participating um, in that uh, in that change. Thank you. Also, I just want to say if I'm like blinking a lot or saying it's just because we have construction in the building and it's oh, no worries. <laughs> lots of dust in my eyes today. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to word this question, but you know, I think that a lot of the conversations I've heard over the past few weeks are people feel like things haven't really changed. And it seems like some people are losing hope that government entities um, or these larger powers that be can, can make that change. And it seems like people are really um, talking about the community leading that change. And I guess, do you see this fund as a way that the community can lead the way their community has changed? I, I absolutely do. As I, I might have mentioned, you know, earlier on, is that the even the original contributors to this fund were very deliberate that the the um, the fund and its administration be led by members um, from that community, from that Black and Brown community, um, and that it uh, elevates the voice and amplifies the voice of that community. Uh, in, in, in a very informed way, um, you know, also looking at, uh, you know, external initiatives um, outside this community to get the, to get the, the best opportunities here. So I, you know, I can see, I mean, there's, there's been years and years and years, um, and then promises, broken promises. There have been, you know, people who have, um, you know, getting really, really excited as they climb to the top of this roller coaster, right? And only to get to the top. And I don't know, some people find it exciting to come down that other side, but some, you know, it's just a, a clear drop, right? So I, I would say that um, I, I, would, I would encourage people um, to, to, to um, continue to have hope because, you know, this, 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 this heinous act that happened um, a year ago, just about a year ago today, um, while they came and they wanted to kill people in our community, uh, kill you know um, individuals, they also wanted to kill the hope of this community. I mean, in many cases, we're barely hanging on um, just be because of the long, long-term uh, scarcity and lack of resources. So, I mean, we were pretty much at a tipping point already. So that could be enough to really um, trigger so much of the that incident of trauma, triggering uh, generational trauma, um, triggering ancestral trauma in that community. So you know, we can see how people may how the community um, would say, "I don't see the change that I had hoped for in this year." When we're really uh, trying to make change that addresses conditions that evolved and uh, were compounded over decades. Uh, so, you know, the expectation that it would change in a year um, uh, demonstrably um, is, you know, I, I can see wanting to have that happen, but, you know, we want to have things that are going to stay, things that are not gonna go away in the middle of the night. So we know that that change has to, um, has to have some uh, you know, great uh, good planning, 
um, and it really makes sense. And uh, we want it to be sus uh, sustainable. These are, um, and it require. I think that uh, a year uh, um, is hopeful, but uh, you know, in terms of the challenges and the issues and the conditions that exist, um, you know, it's 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 it, would, it just requires more, and uh, it will it was not going to be um, something that happens um, immediately, but over time. But I think they'll start to see uh, change. There's a lot of excitement about coming to that community um, and and bringing resource there. There's a lot of attention there, um, and there's a lot of resources. It just needs to be harnessed, and it need, and people need to be um, you know fully connected to those resources. Because that's another thing. If you have these things that are um, have been put there, but people for whatever reason are not connected to them, um, then uh, you don't you don't get the optimal results. Thank you, and I, I think we're um, the time is running out on the Zoom. Um, but I, I did want to wrap up by asking, um, what can people look forward to with your fund? What's up next, and what really? What's next for the Buffalo Together right. Fund? And um, how can people get involved if they want to either contribute or um, be a part of the process? Sure, so they can contribute by going to um, the Buffalo Together Fund, Buffalo Together Community Response Fund um, out to our website. And uh, also, um, and they can get updates um, on that site as well. But um, what they can look for is um, within the next, you know, by the end of the year, with the help of the uh, Rainbow Research Group, we do intend to publish and come out with an actual uh, first iteration of of this investment plan. You know, we and we don't know where it's going to evolve. They, they will, it will be multifaceted, and some of the ideas that are going around is might be maybe creating a foundation within that community, its own foundation. That it, uh, it it will administrate and can grow, um, and also just looking for opportunities to bring additional uh, investment to the community from outside entities and even expats um, who uh, love know and love this community and are uh, vested in it, in its growth and and prosperity. Thank you so much for talking with me. All right, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. We'll be back with more after this. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're speaking with Jeff Dion, the executive director of the National Compassion Fund. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Happy to. Uh, to start, I'd love to um, just talk about how the National Compassion Fund arose, because I actually talked to victims first the other day. And um, I know that the National Compassion Fund really arose out of a need for um, this kind of immediate support to survivors and victims? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, previously, uh, you know, uh, early 2000s, an event like this would occur and people just 
spontaneously send money. They feel bad. They want to help. They don't know what to do. So they send money. And um, often what would happen is a governor or mayor or someone would designate some local agency to be the recipient of those funds. And that poor local agency was doing this on an emergency basis without any plan in place ahead of time and usually without any foundation or understanding or background of victims' rights, victims' needs, or existing victim services. And then there would invariably be controversy over well, how much was kept for overhead and, you know, what went where and things like that. And after the Aurora Theater shooting in July of 2012, some survivors uh, from that event came to see us at the National Center for Victims of Crime and said, we don't like how our charitable fund is being administered. We want you to set up a new fund for us. Uh, one of the things they didn't like was it only included people who were killed or wounded. And it did not recognize other people who were there who experienced psychological trauma. Yet in that event, there were people whose loved ones died in their arms or died protecting them. And to say that they didn't count as victims uh, we could not abide. Um, and so that was one of the principles, one of the things they were looking to correct. But when they came to us, I thought, rather than just set up a fund for you, what if we put an infrastructure in place so that when one of these events occurs, we can flip a switch, we can start accepting contributions from the general public, then we can make sure that 100% of that money goes to the uh, victims and survivors of that crime. And so that's what we did. And um, we sort of built that infrastructure and we just waited for the day that we knew would come, even though we didn't want it to. And that happened on April 2nd, 2014, with the second mass shooting at Fort Hood in Texas, where the Defense Department designated us as the official relief fund. Uh, we took in some contributions, we distributed them to victims and we're like, okay, this could work. Since then, I'm now doing, I think, my 27th fund, and we have collected and distributed over $140 million to more than 3,000 victims and survivors. Wow. I mean, what has that been like for you leading this? I mean, this is obviously, no one wants to be, these tragedies shouldn't be happening, but they That's do. Right. And there's people who are suffering after them. I mean, what is it like for you when, when you get involved with a new fund? It's difficult because trauma is cumulative, and I've got to be very mindful about my interactions and, and making sure that I'm doing the things I need to do to stay healthy and centered and balanced so I can be there to help that next community. Tell me a little bit more about what it was like when Buffalo's mass shooting happens. I mean... Um, how does the National Compassion Fund get involved after um, a tragedy, and what was it like responding to Buffalo? Well, like everybody else, um, I watched uh, the news that Saturday in horror as I saw what happened, and you know, almost immediately there was knowledge that this was a targeted attack and it was racially motivated, and like everybody else, I was outraged, and so. I thought about it and Sunday morning we started doing outreach and we wanted to reach out to tops, uh, reach out to the mayor of Buffalo, reach out to the community foundation, anybody we could 
What's going on? How can we help? And oftentimes when I deal with companies, we get referred to them by other companies that we have served. And we did a fund for Stop and Shop that had a shooting in West Hempstead, New York on Long Island. And we had done a fund for Kroger uh, that had a grocery store shooting in Collierville, Tennessee. So one of the first things, you know, you try and reach tops. Corporate offices are not open on Sunday. I call the customer service line. No, all you can do is send this email. I explain what I'm doing. They're like, okay, really send it to there, but we're going to look out for it. We'll run it up. I called Kroger and said, have you had any contact with Tops? I called Stop and Shop and they said, yes, we've talked to Tops. We've, you know, we've given them your information. Let us connect you. By early Sunday evening, I was on a call with the corporate leadership at Tops, helping them think through how to respond uh, and what we could do uh, as a part of that. I always say that there are numerous legitimate needs that arise out of an event like this. Some people want to help victims. Some people want to build a memorial. Some people want to help with ongoing community needs. Every situation is different and unique. And here, it also created, the. there was the additional problem of this community was now basically in a food desert because they've lost their grocery store and people need to eat. So there's absolutely a lot of needs. And what I told the community foundation, you know, in most community foundations, they found local nonprofits to provide services and we give money directly to people. And so I just said, listen, there's a lot of different needs. The best thing you can do is divide it up and let people vote with their mouse. If you want to help with this, click here. If you want to help with this, click here. And so that's what we did. And so they said, if you want to help victims directly, click here. And it took them to us. If you want to help with these ongoing community needs, you could give to the community foundation to help with their process. And I think one thing that I've noticed is a little bit more difficult to understand is why the process isn't immediate, why it takes time right. for all of these funds to be um, dispersed to the people that it needs to go to. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that process and, and where we stand today in that process? We always project that our process takes about five months. If you're going to divide up 100% of the money, you need to, there two pieces of information that we need to be able to do that. One, how much money do we have? And two, how many people have been validated in each category? And uh, because otherwise we can't do that distribution. And in the early days when, you know, and I think there was uh, particularly some really bad information that went out regarding Buffalo uh, by people that didn't understand the process and really didn't want an explanation. They just wanted to create outrage. And so when people say, give out the money, my answer is to whom and how much? When there were discussions in uh, Buffalo over who counted as a victim, who do we include in this? And and so before we start dividing things up, we have to, we you know, the community needs to make that decision. Also, because we're giving away 100% of the money, once that money's allocated, there's no money left. So if someone doesn't like the decision about the gift they received, there's no right of appeal. 
which means it's really important that we get everybody to buy into the process ahead of time. And that's why we have a steering committee put out a proposal, get feedback on that proposal, have a conversation, and then make a decision. While that is happening, at the same time, we're starting at the very beginning. Let's start the conversation about what are the rules and eligibility going to be? How are we going to get information to people? Who's going to be included? How is that going to be decided? Once, um, uh, and there's also a question of when are victims ready to deal with these administrative issues? Um, you know, I've had people say, I would not have been ready mentally to deal with this earlier. And so it's we're trying to strike a balance between how do we get help to people as soon as we reasonably can, but also when they're ready. Um, and that's why, you know, um, once we finalize what the rules are, then it takes us about three weeks to build the online online application. When we open the application, we like to give people a month to be able to do that, uh, for them to have the time to pull that together because they don't work well, you know, under pressure. And then if you have someone who was injured, didn't go to the main hospital in Buffalo, but went to their primary care physician or their or urgent care, and they filed on the very last day that applications were open, and we had to validate their medical treatment, and we sent a, a request using their HIPAA authorization, someone could say, I, by law, I have 30 days to respond. So we need to build that into the timeline as well. And one of the challenges here, we knew that one of the conversations I always have when we start a fund so we can sort of understand the scope of it is how many people were in the building? How many people were in the store? How many people were in the parking lot? And because that's our universe of people directly impacted. And conversations with Tops, they said, you know, it is less than 200. And so we said, okay, so we'll just estimate our universe is like 200 people. We had 507 applications. And so we had a lot of applications from people who were not eligible because they weren't there. They weren't in the store or the parking lot. They were across the street. They were down the block. They were, you know, and and because of that, we had a lot more to process. And the Buffalo Police Department, who was validating presence, it, they were, it was really overwhelming for them. Um, and so we were, you know, all the way to the very end, still working to try and get people um, uh, validated as being present. And there were some where uh, we uh, were actually able uh, to get tops to look on their security footage and validate people's presence if law enforcement didn't have their name, you know? And so we wanted to give every peep, every person, every opportunity to be included if they were there. But we had to follow our guidelines and the policies set by that local steering committee. That was our responsibility. We had a lot of people um, who were on public benefits, and we did a lot of work with folks to say, listen, we want to give you money, but we don't want to do anything to harm your benefits. And so if you get Medicaid, SNAP, TANF, SSI disability, you need we need you to talk with some of these legal services folks so they can look at your specific situation 
and give you advice on what's the best thing to do. Because if I was giving someone a whole bunch of money, maybe they're not going to care whether or not they get SNAP benefits. If we're going to give people a whole bunch of money and they don't want it to count towards against their eligibility, we can create a special needs trust. Or if the money is going to go into and out of their account in the same month, then it doesn't count. So, but there are different rules for each of these benefit programs. And, and I know, like you said, that extends the whole process. I'm wondering where the process stands today. Has all the money been dispersed and how many people did end up um, receiving funds, if you know offhand? And do you know what the um, total of the fund ended up being? Yes. Total amount distributed by the fund was $6,452,355.32. And I know you mentioned that um, over 500 people applied and so under 200 people um, ended up getting funds. Can you go into the decision-making a little bit about how eligibility is determined? Because I know, like you said, some people were um, confused by the eligibility and also people were affected surrounding TOPS. Sure, they, absolutely. You know, so whenever we do a fund, we've got to draw a circle on a map and people inside that circle are covered and people outside that circle are not covered. And you want to draw your circle large enough to include all of the people who were directly impacted, but not, but small enough that you don't oversubscribe your available benefits. We want to be able to provide meaningful financial gifts to people. And we count that as generally our recommendation is not to make a gift of less than a thousand dollars because that seems like a significant amount of money. But if all these people have been through this horrible experience and uh, we say, okay, your share of this is $62.13, then that sort of adds insult to injury. Um, so there are different, and, and just like, you know, um, the epicenter of, you know, ripples of a rock hitting the water, there is greater impact at the center, but it goes out a ways but becomes less as it moves out. And so we were concerned with the people who were directly impacted because we deal with trauma. And the definition of trauma is that someone is in, uh, in a situation where their life or that of a uh, you know close family member is threatened. So these are people who were at imminent risk of death. And so we had drew that circle to include the grocery store and its parking lot because people were killed in the parking lot. And uh, and that's how we drew that. Trauma is something that you experience and that it sort of takes you by surprise. And so that's why we don't cover people who come to the scene in response to that event. Uh, so though, you know, there might've been hundreds of people who came to TOPS because of the shooting, but they weren't there when it happened. And that's what, and that's what we count. And so the fund has it, it's all been dispersed, right? Yes. And so are you into the auditing process yet? So I think we just got the last 
that last person who was going into the pooled trust that got approved, I think that last person has been paid and now we will start that uh, that agreed upon procedure because we can't do the um, uh, can't do that financial review till all the money's out of the account. And um, I don't know that we had we didn't have as much of a problem in Buffalo, but you know some places will send people checks and they expire after 90 days and they haven't cashed the check. And then we have to reissue it. Um, and there's been some checks, not for Buffalo, but we've had to reissue like four times. And I'm like, don't these people want the money? Like, but we can't, until all the money's gone, we can't start this process. We only have a few minutes left, but I, I since the fund has wrapped up and you're moving into that auditing process, I'm wondering if there was anything learned through going through this process in Buffalo, anything that worked really well, any challenges that you face that um, you might want to reflect on? I think the communication points need to be a lot clearer about eligibility and and I don't know if you know we there were navigators that were helping people apply and you know what we told them if someone is not eligible do not have them submit an application but I think often they didn't want to be the ones to say well you're not eligible well why don't you just put it in and see and we got like 300 people that we couldn't, uh, you know, that weren't eligible and then were just angry. We did also have, I mean, there were a few instances of fraud where people said they were there and they weren't. And we, we said, what do you have to show that you were there? And someone submitted a complaint that they filed with the Better Business Bureau complaining about being at Tops and nearly getting killed. And the date stamp showed that it was done the afternoon of May 14th. Um, and so, wow, they did that contemporaneously and that was how they reacted, okay. Well, we went and checked with the um, Better Business Bureau and we said, we got this copy of this complaint. Can you tell us when it was received? And they said, oh yeah, that came in in August after we had, came in after we had told someone, You're, you didn't get validated by the police, do you have anything else that shows you were there? And so someone had actually manipulated the date on their printer to show that, you know, it was done this way. So it's like, okay, we're not going to approve this, this application. And, and do you think that instance of fraud highlights why this process exists? Yeah, exactly. Because I think donors need to know, need to have confidence that if they donate money to this, it's going to go to the right people. Definitely. And is there anything else that you wish I would have touched on? No, I just, you know, I tell people, especially when I'm working with someone and I know they're clearly eligible and they're going to be included in this distribution. And I tell them, look, you're going to get some money and I can't tell you right now how much it is. And you're going to do whatever you want with the money. But maybe even more important than that is the knowledge that there are people from around the country and around the world that cared enough about you that they reached into their pocket because they wanted to help. Because this was uh, an act of hatred. And the only way we can truly counter that is with acts of love and compassion. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, you're very welcome. You take care. Thank you for listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Emily Watkins and you're listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo. W-O-L-N Olean and W-U-B-J Jamestown, your NPR station.